Brethren, we are, of course, back from the Feast of Tabernacles and we're back to the grind. We're back to our normal work, our normal daily schedules, our study, our work, our housework, all of the things that have to be done. And, of course, in the midst of all of this, we begin to think, as we often reckon time, about the spiritual aspect of our life as we look from feast to feast, the spiritual side of life. Now, I know that the uh, sacred year does not begin in the fall. It, of course, begins in the spring. But I think for many of us, in a practical way, as we get back from the feast, we sort of reassess and say, okay, I'm back from the feast. I listened to some sermons. Hopefully, we were inspired by the sermons. The message of the kingdom of God was renewed for us. And then we come back to everything that has to be done and our lives that are so busy and our responsibilities toward God in terms of prayer and Bible study. Now, I know a lady in the church, she doesn't attend here in Dallas, but she's in another part of the country, and this lady, whom some of you would be aware of, told me that she gets up every single morning at 4 a.m. for her prayer and Bible study, and I think she sets aside a significant amount of time in prayer and Bible study every single morning before her day gets underway. Uh, I will add here that this particular lady does her Bible study using Braille. Yeah, she has no sight, and she's one of those remarkable people who have spiritual sight and um, not her physical sight. For most of us, getting out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning and half an hour of prayer and half an hour of Bible study is perhaps not that practical. We struggle to get out the door. We have many, many things that have to be done. And that's what I'd like to address in the sermon this afternoon. I'd like to give a sermon on some of the practicalities, especially of Bible study. Um, before we get to that subject, a reminder to all of us, and I, I, hope, I don't think this is necessary but for everybody. I'm sure it's not. But uh, the other part of our spiritual responsibility, which is prayer, of course. And let's all be reminded as we get back into our normal lives following the Feast of Tabernacles that prayer is an essential part of our lives. And really, every one of us, baptized or not baptized, needs to spend a little bit of time with his or her Creator on our knees talking to our Creator before we go out the front door. Yeah, I know what a struggle it is to get out that front door. You know too. We've got work responsibilities, we're going off to college, we've got things we have to do, and we're under the gun. But I really do think that it is needful for us all to be reminded that prayer is like the American Express card. That old advertisement is probably stuck with us. You don't leave home without it. So a reminder to all of us, myself included, that as we get into a new year, as we often regard it in practical terms, that prayer is essential before we go out of that front door and leave our homes. But let's go to the other part of this, which is the theme of the sermon. Now let's go to John 5 and verse 39. John chapter 5 and verse 39. A few scriptures to remind us about the importance of studying the Word of God. John 5 verse 39. The context here of course, is Jesus talking to his disciples. And in my red letter Bible, it says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, 
and these are they which testify of me. Now, of course, contextually, this referred back to the Old Testament, and he's talking to a Jewish audience, verse 39 of John 5. Um, and um, he's saying, look in the scriptures because you can find information about Jesus Christ, the Savior, in the scriptures. Searching the scriptures is important. Bible study is important for every one of us on a regular basis. In Acts chapter 17, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul was in Asia Minor, and he saw a contrast between two groups of people in one city and in another city. Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, Acts 17 verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These, the Bereans, were more fair-minded. My footnote has a different word here. Um, no, there's a, I thought there was a different word. More noble, yes, more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. We need to be noble as well. We found out whether those things are so. The, those things, of course, were, was Jesus the Christ. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. All right, so now we get to the practical side of this matter. We come back to the feast, and we're back into the hurly-burly and the whirlwind of life and everything going on, and the dilemma that many of us have, and I include myself in this, is in John 11, verse 9, John chapter 11, verse 9, and that is that time is at a premium. Time is at a premium. In our modern world, time has become more difficult to manage. I read a book recently that said the uh, average uh, sleep cycle, the average amount of time that the average American woman has sleeps now has been reduced by about one hour from the, over the last 12 years or so. I think that's approximately correct. John 11 verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. If one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Twelve hours in the daylight portion of the day. Time is at a premium. We have too many time wasters in our lives. And things that demand our attention, our classes, our work, for some transportation is time consuming as well. And I'm sure I'm not the only person here in the Dallas congregation who from time to time gets home in the evening you're exhausted, and there are two things that you want, to put some food inside of your tummy and then to hit that sack as quickly as possible. And where does Bible study fit into all of this? It's a dilemma, and it's sometimes under we're sometimes under pressure. Practical suggestions for Bible study. I brought two books with me. One is a Bible. One is my favorite Bible reference work, and I'll make reference to it shortly. And the other one is my cell phone. I did silence it. <laughs> I did silence it. It's on silent. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always been a bit of a Luddite. I was very slow to get a cell phone. Um, 
I had one of those old flip phones for many years, and everybody in the office used to think this was very funny because I was probably about the last one to be using a flip phone when everybody else had moved into the 21st century. I've since found that cell phones can have many uh, useful, edifying purposes, but also some time wasters as well. One of the things that I've discovered is that cell phones can be very helpful for a little Bible study. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands. I'm guessing most of us here have a cell phone. And um, one of the things that I put onto my cell phone, you probably have as well, is a number of Bible apps. As I press the button here and uh, put in my password and then get to my big start screen, I've got at least two Bible apps on this cell phone. Uh, one is uh, the YOU version, which I find very, very helpful. Um, I don't have any vested interest in selling it to you. Uh, the other one that I have, let's see, is, um, there we go, NKJV Bible. Now, there are several of these. If you go to the App Store on your cell phone, there's a whole bunch of them, some more useful than others, some really quite useful, and most of them are free as well. So it's well worth, if you don't have one installed on your cell phone, well worth in installing it. One of the reasons I mention it is because, you know, we go through that busy day and we've got so much going on. We're maybe just driving, or we may be preparing food, or we may be washing dishes, and I'm sure many of us have had the thought in our minds, what am I doing with this time? The time's going by, and it's not useful. The point I'm making is that if you get one of these apps, several of them have audio Bibles on them because you can download the audio Bible. And it can be very helpful just to put your cell phone down while you're doing something that doesn't require a whole bunch of brain power and listen to the Bible in audio on your cell phone. Now, I had an assignment a few months ago uh, to go down to Houston South uh, to go and speak to the church there. And it's about a five-hour drive from Allen, Texas to Houston South where the church meets. That's a lot of time. And I-45 is not the most uh, picturesque uh, freeway in the nation, as you probably know. So you know, I'm thinking, what do I do with my time? And I finally figured out, as I took my cell phone with me and stopped off in the first rest area, which buttons to press to attach the cell phone to the audio function on the, uh, on the uh, um, radio uh, player in the car and to be able to listen to some Bible as I drive down. So it's one of these very practical things that we can do with our cell phones, with our mobiles, um, as time goes by, while we're uh, doing whatever. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a substitute for real Bible study, unreal Bible study. I'm not suggesting that that should be our daily substitute for sitting down at our desks with our Bibles opened uh, and looking into a particular subject in the Bible. I am saying that I found that to be very helpful and I think you would too. You probably already picked up on that already. We need more intense study time. How do we go about it in our modern world? A few ideas and a few suggestions. The remainder of the, of the sermon will be a series of suggestions that I hope you'll find helpful. In some cases, I'm going to tell you what we're doing in the classroom at Foundation Institute, what we've got going on at present. So this is kind of a brainstorming. And I would invite everybody in the congregation to brainstorm for himself or herself as well. Because when we get back from the feast, we need to begin to think about what is it, what do I want to do when I'm studying the Word of God? Is it just kind of haphazard? 
Do I sit down, let the Bible open, uh, you know, drop down on the desk and whoops, there's Jeremiah again. Uh, yeah, it could be like that if we're not careful. So a few suggestions. A suggestion number one, I'd like to make a comment here about note takers. As I look out, I realize that a number of you are note takers. You listen to the sermons and you take notes. And taking notes can be very, very helpful. Go through what the sermonette says and what the sermon says and write down some notes. But I want to make a point here, and that is that once in a while I sort of look over someone's shoulder at the notes they're taking, and I know the person who's taking notes has been in the church for a very, very long time, and occasionally they're just writing a list of scriptures. Recommendation. Write the scriptures and write the ideas. You want to get the ideas down. I see many brethren who just write a list of scriptures, write the ideas as well. When you've been in the church for 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, as many of us here have been, we probably know where to find the scriptures. But the thing that the preacher says in terms of understanding and applying the scriptures uh, is perhaps the part that we overlook at times. So if you are a note taker, write the ideas down. Do it in brief form. You've probably figured out some kind of a shorthand for your own uh, sermon notes, but get the ideas down as well. Now, the second point I want to move on to here, and I'll just move through that very quickly. The second point is something that I've found to be very helpful over the years to help me to keep a Bible study going, Bible study habit going, and that is to pursue curiosities to pursue curiosities. When you've been in the church for a while, hopefully we've come to the point where we understand the basic doctrines. We know where to go to prove the Sabbath. But from time to time, every one of us is reading and studying the Bible, and we come across some little detail and think to ourselves, hmm, this is interesting. I don't know exactly what this means. Or we're thinking about a particular doctrinal subject and thinking to ourselves, you know, I don't know exactly which scriptures apply on this particular doctrinal subject. And when I first came into the church, I remember my very first church service back in England uh, years ago, a long time ago, Bricketwood, England. And I sat down in services. I had a, a booklet. I had a, a writing pad. And uh, actually, one of the first ministers I ever sat down with was Paul Suckling, who was serving the church in England at that time. And we went through some of the questions I had. And uh, I don't know that I've got every last one of those questions answered even now, but most of them, hopefully. But my point here is that we should keep the list of questions. We need to be curious about the scriptures. The Bible is a living book, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. You will know some of these scriptures, of course. The Bible is a living book. And it's amazing how when we come back to scriptures that we've read many times before, we often see something in them, a deeper level, an application in some corner of our lives where it needs to be applied. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. Look at the vocabulary and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and helps for you and me to discern the thoughts and intents of our own hearts. One of the purposes of God's word. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must have to give account. The Bible is a living book. 
We've all experienced reading a portion of the Bible, a couple of verses, and seeing some angle to it, some emphasis in it, something we hadn't seen before. Reading a section of one of the narratives in the Old Testament or the New Testament and thinking to myself, ourselves, you know, I'm not that familiar with this section of Scripture. Cultivate your curiosities. Cultivate your curiosities. And this might involve keeping a little file on your computer or on your cell phone and jotting things down every now and then, and then pursue the curiosities. So that when you get home at the end of the day and you think, well, I've got to study the Word of God, it doesn't become, uh, it doesn't become how should we put it, dry and rote. Uh, you've got to study because you've got to study. You want to study because you want to find out about this particular subject. Now, let me let you into a little secret for, out of my own life. Of course, I have uh, the privilege of working for the church as a Bible teacher. And uh, my own knowledge of the Bible, sometimes I think that it's a little bit skewed in particular direction because I've taught almost just about all of the Old Testament. Uh, so my knowledge of the Bible is skewed toward the Old Testament. And I don't know how many times I've taught books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. If I'm online, we've got a series on Ezekiel that's just been published. I think I've taught the book of Ezekiel probably 25 times and depending at least and depending on how many how many how you count it the book of Jeremiah at least 30 times maybe more including short seminars uh, but the point I'm making here is even in books that I've read through and had to teach that many times once in a while in my class prep I'll notice some little detail and for me as a teacher this is essential because if that doesn't happen, I feel like I'm going in dry. You know, sometimes I talk to people and, and I have to explain to them, no, for those of us who teach Bible for the church, we don't go in with dry notes. We, we do a little bit of review, we do a little bit of prep, and I think I can speak for the others as well. We note something we've never seen before, or a comment, or even a footnote in the Bible, and there's some little new detail. And for me, and I think for the others who teach Bible, this is essential because it sort of keeps it alive. Now, I think it's the same for every member of the church. You find something new there. Cultivate the curiosities. Cultivate the curiosities. Sometimes we need to challenge ourselves. Could I defend this? Do I know how to explain this doctrine? Acts chapter 9 and verse 22. Acts 9 and verse 22. Acts chapter 9 and verse 22. This is as Paul is being converted. Acts 9 verse 22. Look at what he did. But Saul, later named Paul, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Could you do that? Could I do that? Can we all do that? Can we list the Old Testament scriptures that prove that Jesus is the Christ? When you read through the book of Acts, that really was the big question all the way through from the beginning to end. Was Jesus the Christ? Uh, how good would you be at looking through all of those messianic scriptures in the Old Testament? Could you defend it? Now, okay, this is the southern part of the United States, and your neighbors may be uh, Baptists or, uh, or Methodists or whatever, and they don't need that proven to them. But uh, nevertheless, 
It is an important part of our Bible understanding. I've even known, uh, I even knew a man many years ago who sort of lost the thread, the messianic thread from Old Testament to New Testament and actually is no longer part of our faith. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 and verse 24. Acts 18 verse 24. Here's another example out of the book of Acts. We can read these examples and we can ask ourselves, can I do that? Do I have sufficient active knowledge to be able to express these things? Acts, 9, Acts 18 and verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. He was good. He was giving good sermons, exciting sermons. But there was a big, big gap in his knowledge. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Isn't that an interesting comment? Probably means he didn't know about the laying on of hands. Wow. <laughs> you know, again, this is something that we understand that those of us who have been baptized have had done in our lives to receive the Holy Spirit. But he knew only the baptism of John, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So the point that I'm making, there are many examples that we could take here, uh, is that from time to time we need to challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, okay, is it a passive understanding of our doctrine or is it an active understanding of our doctrine? Okay, so we're in the south of the United States and we don't have to prove to our uh, neighbors who may well be well aware that Jesus is the Christ, but most of them don't agree with us on the day of worship. And from time to time, we have friends and neighbors who are genuinely curious. How good would we be at proving the Sabbath out of the New Testament? Now, of course, uh, our publications are a very good and very reliable source of information. Uh, LHT, uh, take a look at it from time to time. I'm sure we do look there. It's a very, very good library of publications there. Uh, a little while ago, I had to read every last article because I was on the doctrine committee, and we had to look at every one. But I'm guessing that most of us have probably not read all of the articles there. The other thing that I'm going to give a little bit of a plug to here at this point is the Bible study course. I was talking with Eric Jones in the office yesterday and uh, checking it this morning. Eleven lessons in the Bible study course. And even for those of us who are veterans of the church, going back over that Bible study course and going over the scriptures so that we don't say, well, I understand them, but we come to the point where we say, I could explain this to a neighbor of mine who doesn't share our faith. Is the Bible relevant to you? Lesson number one. How to study the Bible? Lesson number two. Introducing the true God? Lesson number three. There's a big one because chances are that your Protestant neighbor doesn't know about the true God, not in the way you and I understand that. Lesson number four, Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. So some have started work on that Bible study course, but I think that might be a good part of our projects for this year as well. Now, from time to time, we're looking for a more systematic study, something a little bit deeper. From time to time, hopefully we're not on the run, we're not going at 100 miles an hour, and we do set aside that time in our study uh, or, uh, or in our, our bedroom or wherever it may be to quietly sit down and do a study in some part of the Bible and learn a little bit more about a section of the Bible that perhaps we didn't understand so well. What about one of the epistles of Paul? 
When was the last time you picked out one of the epistles of Paul and said to yourself, you know what, I don't really understand this one all that well and do a systematic study of it. Now we now have a good part of this in FI Online. Uh, the book of Colossians, and I'm just push, putting out uh, ideas here. Um, the book of Colossians, I believe, is the only one of the uh, epistles of Paul that has no Old Testament quotations or allusions. Uh, what is the subject of the book of Colossians? Could you explain that? Do you know what it is? Uh, what about one of the minor prophets? When was the last time you dived into the book of Obadiah or the book of Nahum? Now, of course, when we, when we do a study in a complete book of the Old Testament or the New Testament, it can be very helpful to get a little bit of background before we jump in. And I'll come to that shortly. There are things that we need to do to get a little bit of background. And then we come to the matter of all of these publications that are there for Bible reference works and so on. And I'm going to give a few suggestions in a moment about uh, what to use and how to use some of these Bible reference works. I'm impressed with some of our young people in Latin America. Uh, you know what they've done? They uh, have a kind of a Sunday afternoon electronic get-together, and together they're watching the series in FI Online on the Book of Acts. Mr. Johnson, whom I don't see here today, uh, he may be at home, I didn't, don't see him today, but anyway, Mr. David Johnson recorded a very good series on the Book of Acts. It was done in a voiceover into Spanish, and two of our ministers in Mexico now kind of coordinate a study together with a number of the young people in Mexico and the rest of Latin America. And after they viewed the class, they get together and they discuss it. They have an active discussion. So I mentioned here and put in another plug for one of our uh, products in the church, which is FI Online. FI Online now includes quite a list of classes. I didn't do a scientific uh, survey, but it seems to me that in the English language we're somewhere around 50% of the classes that we could publish in the format of FI Online. And I should explain here, some of our classes, the way we do them in the classroom, some of them don't lend themselves to being published in FI Online because they're not done in uh, lecture style. Sometimes students are in groups, we have seminars type, type things, uh, sometimes we teach a class inductively. But out of the material that it lends itself to lecture, I think it may be roughly approaching 50% of it. What this means, of course, is even if you don't have the time to come and study with us for nine months, you can sit in the comfort of your own study at home and get much of the biblical material from FI Online. Classes have been well received. Last year, 2020, we took a recess from Foundation Institute because of COVID, and we recorded some classes, Mr. Johnson and I. I did the Ezekiel series in English and in Spanish. I know it hasn't begun to be published in Spanish yet, because I know once that happens, my email box is going to be very full. Uh, they haven't begun to publish it in Spanish yet. I don't know when they're planning it, but they're all recorded, and the Ezekiel series is out there. Mr. Johnson worked very hard on a series on the general epistles. So upcoming is a series on the general epistles. Now, I don't know how much you know about the general epistles. They're wonderful little books, beginning with the book of James. But a suggestion for you, and a suggestion for your Bible study, do a little bit of study preparing a framework to understand the general epistles, James, first and second Peter, first, first, second, and third John in the book of Jude. Now, there are a number of Bible reference works out there that will help you to do that kind of thing. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. 
But before, before we get beyond the uh, brainstorming session, I'd like to go back into the Old Testament and again give you a number of suggestions. Some of these will strike you, some will not. What about the Psalms? When was the last time you did a study in the Psalms? 150 of them. That's a lot of words. Now let me give you a little bit of an insight into what we've been doing in class just this week. And I think it's been an interesting study. One of the things that we do is that we pick out and isolate the Psalms that have, you know, some of them have got that little subtitle. And they'll say a Psalm of David. And then they'll say, for example, when he was in the cave or when he was being pursued by, by Saul. And so we pick out the Davidic Psalms. We read the Psalm together. No, actually, we first of all look back into First and Second Samuel to see what was going on in David's life when he penned this psalm. What was going on? In many cases, he was running for his life. Of course, at one point from Saul, at another point from Absalom, his own son who was trying to undermine him. You know, you think you've got trials. Imagine having your own son trying to kill you and trying to undermine you. And uh, some of those psalms, the psalms, of course, were, were prayers. And so David's got his back against the wall. Someone's out to get him, and he utters a prayer to God. And those psalms are fascinating because they begin with an outcry to God in a moment of emergency. And then in the context of the psalm, you come through, and you see he begins expressing faith. He begins to express hope. God, I know you will bring me out of this. You've got trials? Pick out some of those psalms. Make them your own prayer. Study them. What's going on in David's life? Uh, Psalm 110, we've got that coming up this week. Psalm 110, and again, we're not going to turn there. My purpose in this sermon is not to go to all of these scriptural passages that I'm alluding to. But Psalm 110, the psalm that is most commonly quoted in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Why? If you were challenged on that, could you answer that question? Why is Psalm 110 so, quite so frequently quoted in the New Testament? There's a Bible study subject for you. It's the kind of thing that I enjoy very much because I enjoy the intertextual study going back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And Psalm 110 is quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. There are other messianic psalms, lots of them. David, the king, types Jesus Christ, the king. And some of the things that he said then carry forward into the New Testament. So a study of the Davidic Psalms, a study of the Messianic Psalms. When you look at the Psalms, you look at 150 of them and you think, boy, that's a whole mountain of words. How will I find my way into studying the Psalms? So there are a few suggestions there. Uh, even some of the imprecatory Psalms are interesting to study and to see what's going on in them. Why? Why the imprecation? What about the Proverbs? The rabbis said the Psalms have to begin the third section of the Hebrew canon because you can't possibly put Solomon before David. You have to have David before Solomon. That was the rationale for it, for what it's worth. But of course, the Proverbs make a wonderful part of our study as well. And uh, I've uh, uh, talked to a lot of people at the time I did this myself and did the day to a chapter method. What is today? Today is the... Uh, ninth day of the month. So you could go home after services today and read Proverbs chapter 9. The wonderful thing about the book of Proverbs, it's this wonderful series of little nuggets of practical information. You take a nugget of information and you put it into your pocket and you pull it out 
at a critical moment in life when you need that little bit of wisdom. Proverbs are wisdom literature. Uh, I've told the students, some of you will identify with this, some of you won't know what in the world I'm talking about, but I tell the students at Foundation Institute that the Proverbs are like Doctor Who's sonic screwdriver. If you don't know about Doctor Who's sonic screwdriver, let's talk after services. Don't worry, you don't have to know that. But the Proverbs are these wonderful little nuggets. And it's amazing how frequently, if you, if, you, if you go through the Proverbs and let them embed themselves in your mind, and once in a while as you're going through life and you find a difficult situation, suddenly a proverb pops into your mind and you think to yourself, ah, this will help me to make the right decision in life. The Proverbs don't require a whole lot of instruction from a Bible teacher. They're easy enough to understand. But just a suggestion for your personal Bible study, the day-to-a-chapter method. 31 chapters in the Proverbs, 30, 31 days in the month of the year on our Gregorian calendar, most months. And so look at the day of the month and study that chapter of the Proverbs. Easy, short, edifying, helpful, fills us with wisdom. All right, now uh, having thrown out a whole bunch of suggestions here, I'd like to move forward and talk a little bit about uh, Bible reference works. Bible reference works. And I think the first thing that I'd like to say is don't waste your money. And there's an awful lot of stuff out there on which you can waste your money. There's been a lot of publication, especially by the evangelicals in the latter part of the 20th century. There's been almost an explosion of publication on Bible reference works and so on. Uh, there's some wheat and there's some chaff. And it's good for us before we spend any of our hard-earned dollars on Bible commentaries and other Bible reference works to know what we're looking for. And that's not always easy. If you, even if you go to a Bible bookstore and you see all of these titles there, it can be pretty confusing. Which ones are good? Which ones are not good? Which ones will help me? Which ones will not help? Which ones will gather dust, as some of the books in my office have done, and I look at them on my bookshelf every now and then, I think to myself, why did I spend money on that one? I never look at it. And I look at others that come down off the shelf very, very frequently, and I think, wow, that particular volume is really quite helpful. One of the criteria that we in the Church of God would almost certainly wish to use is to know who wrote these Bible reference works. There is, uh, there are, the, the Bible scholars are across the map, from the very conservative to the very critical. Uh, conservative scholars are people who take a high view of Scripture. People who, like you and me, say the Scripture is the Word of God. We would naturally, if we're going to spend money on Bible reference works, want to read material written by more conservative scholars. Now, that's not to say that some of the critical scholars don't have anything. Sometimes their cultural information and linguistic information can be useful. But, you know, whenever I go to England and I see there's quite a bit of Bible publishing in England, and a lot of the British authors uh, write about the Bible. They've got interesting things to say, but at the same time, they almost write God out of the picture. Uh, the uh, evangelical American authors don't do that. So uh, look to see who wrote the book. Now, you may never have heard of the person or persons, but of course, then you can pull out your trusty uh, cell phone and do a little bit of research. Who was this person? Is he, is she still living? And then one of the big criteria, one of the things that is helpful is to take a look to see where this person taught or teaches. 
Where do they teach? That's helpful. Uh, and what kind of um, institution was it? I'll give you an example. Here in Dallas, we actually have two seminaries across town. I had to take some classes at one of them a, year, a number of years ago. One is very conservative, and the other one is much more over on the more critical side. So uh, we, if you found authors of Bible reference works who have taught at a conservative Bible seminary, we, you would likely find more in common because they have a high view of the Scripture. That doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything. You've still got to sort out the wheat from the chaff. The other criterion is simply how scholarly is this particular work. There is Bible publication that is shallow, frankly, from both the more conservative and the more critical scholars. Some of it is shallow. You don't want to waste your money. Um, and I'm going to give you um, uh, uh, shortly my... No, I'll do that now because I've talked myself into a corner here. Um, one of the things that I think that is very helpful for us to have on our shelves and not a huge amount of money to be spent um, I suggested a moment ago that in preparation for studying the general epistles, you might want to look at the uh, framework uh, of the general epistles, James, First and Second Peter. When were they written? What was the occasion? And for doing that, what would be very helpful would be an introduction, a New Testament introduction. So I do recommend that if you're wanting to dive in deep on Bible study, a good Old Testament introduction and a good New Testament introduction can be helpful. You may want to purchase more than one. The introduction will give you uh, historical background, it will give you literary information, it will sometimes give you a discussion of what the scholars have said. Uh, again, there'll be some useful information there, some that's not so useful. But here's my little plug here, because if anybody were to ask me, after the Bible itself, which is your favorite Bible reference work? And I put, brought this one with me, because I really enjoy this one and have used it a lot in my teaching. This is R.K. Harrison, Introduction to the Old Testament. It was written back in the 1960s, I think. Roland Kenneth Harrison was a British Bible scholar and I think he taught at a Canadian Bible seminary. But see, when you're buying a book like that, you look to see who the author was. What kind of reputation did he have? Uh, where did he teach? And uh, Roland Kenneth Harrison's reputation was of someone who was more, much more conservative in the way he approached the Bible. And uh, it's amazing how much depth there is in this book. I love teaching, turning to R.K. Harrison's intro uh, for uh, the book of Jonah. He has a wonderful discussion uh, when he discusses the book of Jonah, and he actually documents examples where fish swallowed up mariners in the South Atlantic. Now, maybe you don't need that to believe in the events in the book of Jonah, but nevertheless, I found it fascinating. And he also goes through uh, the uh, book of Isaiah and discusses the matter of divisive uh, authorship of the book of Isaiah. How many authors were there? Was there a second Isaiah? Was there a third Isaiah? Some scholars have chopped up Isaiah into so many pieces that you can barely recognize it as one book any longer. And he goes all the way through it. And in the chapter that he's got on that subject, if I recall correctly, he ends with the following words. He says, I'm going to end with the old Scottish courtroom verdict, not proven. 
you know, in Scotland, it's not just guilty or not guilty, it can be not proven in the Scottish courts. So anyway, that's my favorite Bible reference work. I enjoy that one. Of course, I teach Old Testament, so from time to time, I still pull down R.K. Harrison to get some background information and so on, uh, dating and that kind of thing. There are other Old Testament intros. Uh, there's one that we use at Ambassador College by Lesore, Hubbard, and Bush. Lesore, Hubbard, and Bush. Uh, for my money, not quite as good as Harrison's OT intro. Uh, it's thinner. Uh, there's another one, uh, Gleason Archer, that we often quote in our publications. But a good Old Testament introduction can help because it gives you the orientation. What was the occasion of this book? When was it written? Which king was on the throne? That kind of thing, the historical background. A New Testament introduction can be helpful as well. And there are a lot of them, and I can't really give you a recommendation here. I have one or two on my shelf, one by a man by the name of Donald Guthrie. It's been a while since I've spent much time with it, but there's quite a few others, and I don't know which are the good ones. The evangelicals have published quite a few New Testament introductions. Um, as I mentioned before, look to see who the author is. Where did he or, or she teach? What is their theological slant? Um, as with any kind of Bible reference work, there's got to be a little bit of separating out of wheat from chaff. But you want to take time before blowing your money on any kind of Bible reference work. The other uh, books that we have in our library at, in the church office and that can be helpful, and these are multi-volume works, uh, you probably notice that in the church's publications we often cite the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Now you can get that online, by the way. You can, there are several of these, um, uh, of these suites of uh, Bible uh, reference works, and sometimes they cost a little bit of money, sometimes they cost nothing. But the Expositor's Bible Commentary is a multi-volume Bible commentary, which is similarly mostly conservative in its orientation and quite scholarly and often helps with some of the little details that you may be curious about. One-volume Bible commentaries, in my opinion, they're often an exercise in frustration because they tell you all the stuff that you already know or are not interested in, and the one detail that you're looking for is not there. That said, I'm not saying don't go out and buy a one-volume Bible commentary. There's a lot out there, again, and I'm not going to make a whole lot of recommendations, but uh, there's an awful lot out there. Bible Encyclopedia, ISBE, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. I've got it on my shelf. Um, it's pretty good. You use it like an encyclopedia, like any other kind of encyclopedia, looking for geographical data, looking for names of a king or of a prophet or names of a town or whatever can be quite helpful. Um, many of these things now are available very easily, packaged into electronic packages. You can get in electronic form all kinds of things now, and much of it is free. Uh, one of the, a couple of the sources that we use in the classroom and that I use in the office, and I'll, I'll mention these in passing, Bible Gateway is very good. Bible Gateway will give you a lot of different translations and some Bible commentary as well. Bible Hub is also quite helpful. It's online, you can find it, there's no charge for it. Some of these will take a few extra dollars from you if you want to add in other things. Um, Bible translations, let's talk for a moment about Bible translations. In the Church of God and Worldwide Association, we mostly use the New King James Version. It's a very good translation. 
It's come forward from the old King James Version of 1611. It's very good. It's quite literal. It's not perfect. The church has never done its own translation, but it's a good translation. It's helpful to have other Bible translations on our shelves, uh, maybe one or two others. Uh, I like to look at the New Revised Standard Version every now and then. Um, I have it on my shelf. I didn't bring it with me, but that's a pretty reliable translation as well. The other one that I use in the classroom and the students, the F, current and F, FI students and graduates know this, is Tanakh, T-N-K. It's the modern J JPS translation, Old Testament only, of course, but they had some remarkable insight into uh, some of the scriptures and some of the underlying meanings. So those are my preferences. New King James Version, of course, we use primarily the NRSV, the Tanakh translation. Uh, there are a lot of other translations, again, that have been done mostly by evangelicals. The New International Version, uh, sometimes helpful for reading just a narrative, not very good for a close Bible study. Uh, the Living Bible, not recommended. Some of the Bibles are very, very loose, paraphrase-type Bibles. The paraphrase-type translations, not very helpful, like the Living Bible. But there are many, many others. And for those of us who speak a foreign language, taking a look at a foreign language Bible from time to time can be very helpful. If you speak French or German or Spanish and you check the same scripture in the other language that you know, and it can be surprising how you'll get a slightly different flavor from the wording as you, uh, as you look into a foreign language Bible. The church has never done its own translation. I don't think we ever will. I don't think it's what God expects of us, but we do have good translations available, and I think uh, we should have more than one Bible translation on our shelves. Should you study Hebrew and Greek? Should you go to the local seminary and take a class in Hebrew and Greek? Probably not. The old saying when we talk about people who've studied uh, Bible languages is, I've learned enough Hebrew to be dangerous or I know, he or she knows enough Greek to be dangerous. And sometimes I've received papers from people who dug into Strong's Concordance and looked for a few more words, and they became very dangerous. So, um, you know, I'm not saying don't study Bible languages. Some people are fascinated by Bible languages. I would say this, that both Hebrew and Greek are a pretty tough haul. If you're really going to study biblical Hebrew to the point where you can use it, Hebrew is a little bit like Spanish. It's got a very complicated verb system. And when I worked on my PhD, I began trying to work on biblical Hebrew at home on my own and very quickly threw my hands into the air thinking, no, I can't do this. I've got to take a class and uh, had to take a class in biblical Hebrew. So it's, it's pretty complicated. Now, yes, if you know some Hebrew and you know some Greek, once in a while you'll get a little bit more flavor out of the Bible. So I'm not saying don't study Hebrew and Greek. I am saying that our translations that we have available are good translations, and for most church members it's not necessary. Uh, a good concordance is really quite helpful. I used to use my Strong's Concordance a lot in preparing sermons. Now when I'm preparing sermons, I'm sitting either at home or in the office and working on a sermon, and where is that scripture? And I just turn my chair around and I Google it. So Google has replaced Strong's Concordance. 
I still have a Strong's concordance there and one or two other concordances as well. The concordance, of course, is basically a catalog. It's a listing of all the uses of a particular word in the Bible. So I think we probably still need to have a good concordance. There's a new Strong's concordance that corrected a few of little, little errors. Something that can be helpful as well is books that give you lexical study uh, without having to take a class in Hebrew or Greek at your local seminary. Uh, I have on my shelf the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis in five volumes. It's quite good. Now, I'm not suggesting you run out and buy it, but there are a lot of that kind of thing available, lots of lexical study in both Hebrew and Greek, and if it's done well, and many of them are done pretty well, they will tell you this Hebrew or Greek word has this meaning or this flavor to it. They'll take you a little bit further, and it will shed a little bit of light on understanding the vocabulary in the Bible. Like I said, many of these things are free. No need to uh, spend a whole lot of money on Bible reference works. Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, and let's not forget our own publications in Life, Hope, and Truth. We really do have a very, very good library of material written by uh, people who work for the church, many of our ministers, and many members of the church who've contributed their insight and their wisdom in Life, Hope, and Truth. We should never overlook that as a source for our own Bible study. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. I hope this is helpful. I realize this is perhaps not the most organized approach to the subject, but I'm just sort of brainstorming here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Here the apostle Paul gives advice to the young evangelist Timothy. And the advice, we've read this before, I'm sure, but the advice is remarkable. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy, but as for you, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. For Timothy, that probably meant Old Testament scriptures from his mother, as the mentioned grandmother mentioned here. Continue, but of course we should as well. We need to continue. We need to press ahead in studying the scriptures, knowing from whom you've learned them. Now, of course, we've learned our fundamental beliefs in the church of God. So when we come across strange ideas, and there are strange ideas out, out there, it's a good thing, of course, for us to use the fundamental beliefs of the church as a kind of a filter if something is incompatible. There's always this sorting out of wheat and chaff process. Verse 15, and that from childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the context, of course, is the Old Testament scriptures because little or none of the New Testament had begun to be canonized at the time when Paul wrote to Timothy. And so we should spend some of our time in the Old Testament. And we should, of course, spend some of our time in the New Testament as well, of course. We should never neglect study of the Gospels and the Epistles. And then verse 16. Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed into it. That's the sense of the Greek. God breathed into the Scripture. There's some of the essence of the life of God in the Scripture. And is profitable for, now look at this, for there are four purposes here. Number one, doctrine. Number two, reproof. Number three, correction. Number four, instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
The foundation of our biblical doctrinal knowledge is always the Bible. It's not the Bible reference works and all the rest of it, which can be very helpful. But going back to verse 16, the scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for, and without rereading all of those four purposes, I'd ask all of us just to stop and think for a moment because three out of four are not so much knowledge-based. Three out of four have to do with how must I conduct my life? Reproof. Every now and then the Word of God reproves us. I've been doing this wrong. I've been thinking about this the wrong way. I've got to approach it differently. Correction. The Word of God corrects us. If we let God's Word correct us, then life events don't have to correct us quite so frequently. And for instruction in righteousness, the right way to go the right, right way to approach our lives. The only one that perhaps has more to do with knowledge than with the way of life and Christian living is the first one, doctrine or teaching. It's all part of the package. It's all part of the package. Now we've got a new year ahead of us. We've got a year of growth in the knowledge of the Word of God. I hope it'll be a year of growth for all of us in God's church for me and for you, for the Dallas church and for everyone. I'd like to take you back as I wrap this up to a scripture that you no doubt heard read at the Feast of Tabernacles, Revelation 20, verse 12. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. We heard about the future of humanity. We heard about the resurrection of the dead. And we heard about the criteria that God will use to judge people. When they're called back to life, when they're brought out of the grave, Revelation 20, verse 12, John says, I saw the dead, small and great, the prominent ones and the less prominent ones, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. That first re reference to books in the plural is, of course, a reference to God's word, to the law of God. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Judgment is by the things written in the books. And the books are the word of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we got our work cut out for us. As a body of people, we need to become better in the scripture. We need to become more familiar with the scripture. We need to move forward so that we can explain our doctrines to our neighbors who might want to know. It's amazing how frequently people come into contact with the church from someone that they know and not from an electronic or written publication. The better we are at that, the more possible it'll be that we can be an instrument in God's hands. I'll finish off with one last thought here. This is a very busy feast for me, and uh, I, I enjoyed it very much, but it was awful lot of moving around, and I actually was on six flights uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Two of them were little ones. Two of them were less than one hour. But you've all been, maybe not everybody here has been, but probably just about everybody here in the Dallas church has been on an airplane. And we know what happens when we get on the airplane. We sit down and they give us a safety briefing. And one of the things that they describe during the safety briefing is what happens if there is an emergency. And if there is an emergency, those little lights on the floor of the aircraft will illuminate and lead you toward the exit row. God's word is like that. It's like those little lights that lead us toward the exit row. 
We've had some tough times. We've had some difficult times. We know there will be some difficult times in the future. God's Word illuminates our path. It leads us to the exit row. Psalm 119, verse 105. Psalm 119 and verse 105. The psalmist here gives us a metaphor of God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 105, he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet. I've never had to follow those little lights on the floor of the aircraft. I've never been in a a dangerous situation. I hope never to be. But it's good to pay attention when they talk to you about the safety briefing. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let's become expert in God's word. Let's make it a good year one in which our Bible study doesn't get pushed out of the way. We make room for it, and we study God's Word on a regular basis and become expert in the Word of God.